I'd like for you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1 this morning, and we will look at the last paragraph in this first chapter, verses 10 through 16. Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. Paul is dealing here in this paragraph with the issue of false teaching, with error that had crept into the churches there on Crete through the efforts of false teachers, men who were distorting the gospel. And Paul is seeking to correct uh, that problem in this paragraph. I want to make it clear here that Paul is not talking here about the wide range of uh, variations in opinion that are permissible in very many biblical issues, such as eschatology, for instance. Uh, evangelical scholars have come down on various sides of that issue, what will precede the Lord's return, what will follow it, whether there is a rapture before, during, in the middle, somewhere, whether there is a tribulation period preceding it. And evangelical scholars have disagreed on these issues. And there are many issues like this where there's a range of opinion which is permissible uh, among believers in biblical issues. And Paul is not talking about those issues, but talking about issues in which the Scriptures are clear, and yet there are those about who are teaching something different. Paul is making an effort to correct that problem. <clears throat> Perhaps you followed as I did the story that came out of West Germany several months ago when uh, an industrial plant dumped uh, tons of toxic wastes into the Rhine River and polluted it to the point where it's unfit for human use and consumption for months uh, to come. A river which started uh, pure at its source, and yet because man-made contaminants were dumped into it, it polluted it and became unusable. Now, the very same thing happens in the Church of Christ. Uh, we receive the truth from the Scriptures, pure at its source. And yet there may be those teachers who, by adding certain man-made elements to what they teach, pollute it and contaminate it and make it instead poisonous rather than life-giving. And what Paul is doing here in this little paragraph is a little hazardous waste cleanup. And that's what we want to do this morning, to purify the gospel of those elements which distort its basic message. This is a perennial problem for the church. Uh, I have a book called The Screwtape Letters in my library written by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the Screwtape Letters are a series of letters written by uh, Screwtape, who was an undersecretary under in Satan's uh, kingdom. And uh, he was writing from head office a series of letters to an agent of his on the field by the name of Slubgob. Now, Slubgob's task was to trip up a new young believer. And Screwtape is giving him hints on how to do this. One of the letters says, the real trouble, this is from Screwtape to Slubgob about his new believer, the real trouble about the set that your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must become Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. So Paul is making an effort here to purify the gospel, return it to the pure, life-giving source that comes from the Scriptures. There's two kinds of errors that he deals with in this paragraph. One is what we would class as cultic teaching. Uh, groups that teach basic error about the nature and person of Jesus Christ. 
And then there's a second kind of false teaching which often creeps into orthodox evangelical churches uh, by well-meaning teachers of the Scripture, and that is legalism. And both of those two things Paul wants to deal with in this paragraph. Now, there are various threads that Paul weaves together in these seven verses, and what I would like to do is to read this paragraph with you carefully and then single out the various strands of Paul's thought and follow them through one at a time for you. Let's read in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. These were false teachers that were operating within the body of Christ there on Crete. They called themselves by the name of Christ. They identified themselves with Jesus and with other Christians. And yet operating from within, they were sowing some very dangerous seed that Paul wants to root out here. Now, verse 10 begins with the little word for, which obviously suggests some kind of connection between what he said in verses 5 through 9 and what he goes on to say in verses 10 through 16. In verses 5 through 9, he stressed the importance of Titus selecting qualified elders to oversee these churches there in Crete. And he gives us the reason for that in verses 10 through 16. The reason that elders must be of the type that they are in verses 5 through 9 is because there are those operating within the body of Christ who are distorting the gospel. And it is the function and responsibility of elders to teach the truth clearly, first of all, and then secondly, to spot error and expose it. He says that elders, as you remember, must be above reproach in three areas. They must be above reproach in their family life, in the way they love their wives and raise their children. They must be above reproach in their personal character. And they must be above reproach in their handling of the Scripture. And this is because false teachers are their contrast in every respect. False teachers, as Paul says, instead of uh, bringing families together and making them whole, are upsetting and overturning whole families. Uh, false teachers, we'll see in a moment, are not above reproach. And false teachers, thirdly, distort the gospel and twist it and pervert it. And there is a need for elders to be raised up in the church to teach the truth clearly and to protect the flock from error. This is what Paul stresses in verse 9, which is the immediate connection with the paragraph. Elders, he says, must hold fast, must cling to, be devoted to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that is, the Scriptures and everything which is consistent with the teaching of the Apostles, in order that they may be able to do two things, exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Positively, uh, Paul says, an elder must be able to encourage and exhort in sound doctrine, to teach the Scriptures to God's people so that they are encouraged to grow to maturity and discover all of God's resources for their life. 
And the second thing, to be able to refute those who contradict the teaching of Scripture, to spot error and to expose it. As he says in 1 Timothy 3, an elder must be able to teach. My judgment means he must have the gift of teaching. He must not only be above reproach in his family and personal life, but be equipped by the Spirit for the teaching ministry. Now, it doesn't mean that every elder must be able to teach in a pulpit sort of uh, format. Many uh, elders would be uncomfortable in a pulpit kind of ministry, but are real flamethrowers in a growth group or an adult education class or a Sunday school class. And that's all that's required is the ability to open the Scriptures and, and teach God's people. And the reason for it is because of the false teaching that is around. Now, there are many mature men in the New Testament who did not have teaching gifts or speaking gifts. And evidently, according to Paul's uh, letter to 1 Timothy, these men who were just as mature and godly as elders in every respect but did not have the ability to teach the Scriptures were designated as deacons. Their gifts were in serving areas, and those gifts were equally honored and exalted in the, in the early church. But Paul makes it very clear to Titus there's a need for elders who can handle the Scriptures in order to protect the flock from error in teaching. I'm sure you followed, as I have, the counterfeit story out of uh, Salmon, uh, right here in Idaho. Uh, and it struck me that there's a parallel between the, uh, what the Secret Service is to do and what the elders are to do. First responsibility of elders is to only pass the real stuff, only use that. That's the only thing that will truly enrich people is the real article. So elders must pass that currency. But also elders must be there to spot the bogus stuff and, and take it out of circulation. That's what Paul is doing in this paragraph. Now, there are a number of things, a number of um, uh, facts about these false teachers that Paul discusses in this paragraph, and I want to deal with these one at a time. The first thing I want to address is the issue of who these false teachers were. A couple of hints in the paragraph. In verse 10, he says that these false teachers were especially those of the circumcision. So these were evidently Jews, ethnic Jews, who taught some form of Judaism, which is confirmed in verse 14 that these were men who paid attention to Jewish myths. So they evidently were Judaizers of the same type that had followed Paul throughout his ministry. Now, the second uh, thing that Paul addresses in this paragraph is the characteristics of these false teachers, what sort of character they possessed. And he identifies a number of characteristics which in general indicate that these men were not above reproach, as elders must be. First of all, he says in verse 10 that they are rebellious men. And he uses synonyms in verse 15, says they are unbelieving, that is, they refuse to believe and accept the truth of God. And in verse 16, they are disobedient. The word disobedient in verse 16 has the idea of being uh, of refusing to be persuaded, unpersuadable about the truth of the Scripture. And the term he uses in verse 10 is that they are rebellious that is a mark of a false teacher is that he is resistant to the authority of the Scriptures. He either refuses to accept what the Scriptures clearly teach about Jesus in the Christian life, or he may accept, in addition to the Scriptures, may accept some other documents as equally authoritative and as equally inspired. Well, Paul says that makes him rebellious. He may be very pleasant and very appealing. He may make a great neighbor, but at heart he is rebellious, resistant to the authority of the Scriptures. Now, it would be very nice if these people all wore T-shirts that said, Rebel with a Cause, so we could spot them coming. 
but they don't. But Paul says, nevertheless, in their hearts, there's a rebellion, a resistance to the truth and the authority of the Scripture. In our community right now, there's a group called The Way that is very active. Uh, those who are members of The Way deny the deity of Christ, and they, as well as denying His eternal uh, preexistence. Now, these may be very pleasant people, and yet there's a rebellion in their hearts against the basic teaching of the Scripture about Christ. Secondly, Paul says they are empty talkers. Uh, they're talkers, and that's Paul's concern here in this passage, is with those who are teaching this error rather than those who are believing it. His concern is for those who propagate and perpetuate this sort of error. So they're talkers, but he says they're empty talkers. Often find that these false teachers will use all of the right buzzwords. They'll use all of the same God words that uh, Christians do. And yet, as you begin to probe, you discover that they mean something much different by them. Their talk is empty. And it, furthermore, it's empty in the sense that it does not produce any success or result. The word empty means to be devoid of effect or devoid of force or result. In other words, their teaching produces no real growth toward godliness, toward real Christ-likeness. It doesn't transform people into images of Christ. Uh, the package may be very attractively wrapped with bows and ribbons and pretty wrapping paper, but Paul says if you open it up, you discover that it's empty and dark inside. The third thing he says about false teachers in verse 10 is that they are deceivers. Literally, they lead people's minds astray. They teach them error about Christ and the Christian life. Every cult, I'm convinced, began was begun by someone who knowingly misled people. Someone who knew that what he or she was teaching was error and yet passed it off to people as the truth and got enough people to be convinced of it that generated a following as a result. Now, Paul in verse 12 quotes a man by the name of Epimenides, who was a 6th century B.C. Uh, Greek sage, one of the seven wise men of ancient Greece. And he quotes this uh, prophet to substantiate his point that Cretans are deceivers by nature. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In fact, you had to be from Crete to get into my fraternity in college. But he quotes this testimony of Epimenides and says that, in fact, Epimenides was speaking the truth, that it's a characteristic of Cretans to be liars. That's the point, I think, he's trying to make. In fact, there was a verb that crept into the Greek language to, to Cretize, and it meant to lie and deceive and cheat. They were known throughout the Roman world for this characteristic. Now, Paul's point is because they're like this, and even the Cretans themselves recognize this, is it made it easy for them to be deceivers and to be deceived. They were good at this sort of thing. There was kind of a built-in national characteristic that made them prone to this kind of false teaching. Now, that's true in any culture. It's an important thing for a missionary to learn in going into a different culture to identify the cultural predispositions to error and sin that exist in every people. In America, I think a couple of our cultural predispositions to sin are that we are, uh, by nature, a materialistic people and an individualistic people. So this means that if a false teacher arises in our country and preaches a message which offers people health and wealth and prosperity and promises this to them, 
he'll generate a following. Likewise, if he preaches a message which stresses self-reliance and self-dependence and tells Americans that they have everything they need within themselves to handle life apart from God, likewise, they will gain a following. That's the sort of thing that Paul is dealing with. So these men, thirdly, were deceivers, telling people lies rather than the truth. Fourth, he says in verse 15 that they are defiled. This word defiled in verse 15 originally meant to stain with some sort of dye. And then it came to mean to pollute or to soil or to contaminate. And what he seems to suggest is that these people had polluted the stream and then had drunk from it themselves. And the contamination that they had injected into the gospel had infected them and stained and polluted their own lives. Fifth characteristic identifies about them in verse 16 is that they are detestable, referring to their the evaluation that God places on them. They are literally an abomination in the eyes of God. So this shows you what God thinks of this sort of tampering with this truth. He takes this kind of thing very seriously. It's a detestable thing to do in the sight of God. And last he says in verse 16 that these people are worthless for any good deed. The word worthless means they do not stand the test, literally. They cannot pass the test and therefore are to be disqualified uh, from any sort of ministry in the church. Titus is to set them aside and refuse to entrust them with ministry responsibility. They're not fit or qualified for that. So those are the characteristics of these men. Now, thirdly, we need to ask, what is it that these men taught? Now, the only hints that Paul gives us are in verse 14, and they're more suggestions rather than a detailed list. But he says these men pay attention, first of all, to Jewish myths, and secondly to the commandments of men. First of all, Jewish myths. Now, we don't know what these sort of myths were, but a myth was a legend or a story or a fable that somebody had made up and was passing off as the truth. Now, we know from some of the writings of the rabbis that there are a number of very fanciful stories that grew up around Old Testament characters such as Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and others, and perhaps Paul is resisting that sort of thinking. But he indicates that one of the first marks of counterfeit currency in teaching is that it centers on myth, or what is taught is taught based on myth, a story which is presented as true, but is in fact a, a fable, a legend, something that somebody made up and has no correspondence to reality at all. You can expect to find that sort of thing. The uh, Aryan Nations Church in northern Idaho call themselves by the name of Jesus Christ, just as we do. And yet a substantial portion of their distinctive teaching arises from a myth about the ten lost tribes of Israel. Now, I know my Old Testament well enough to know that the reason these tribes are called the ten lost tribes is that they got lost. They're gone. They disappeared. They were carted off to Assyria. They intermingled and intermarried with Assyrians, and their ethnic identity was completely lost. And yet the Aryan Nations Church has this fabulous story about what happened to these ten lost tribes and how they've resurfaced in America as white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Well, that is simply a myth. It's not true. It has no basis in reality. Uh, in, our, in our part of the state, there is a very popular variant of Christianity, which uh, bases a good percentage of its teaching on a story about early American history. 
which likewise is a myth, a story that someone made up, made up but has been passed off as the truth. No archaeological confirmation, no geographical confirmation, yet passed off as a true history. So that's the first thing Paul says you can expect to find among false teachers is passing off myth or fable or legend as the truth. The second thing is that they teach commandments of men. In other words, they're legalistic. By commandments, Paul is obviously referring to something that these people teach as binding or obligatory upon everyone who calls himself by the name of Christ. A commandment is binding. It's non-optional. As Woody Allen says, God didn't give us the ten suggestions. They're the ten commandments. But what Paul says, the distinctive of these false teachers is the commandments that they teach are the commandments of men, that they find their source in men and in the authority of men rather than in the Scriptures. So rather than being the commandments of God that these teachers teach, they teach the commandments of men. So what these false teachers teach, then Paul says, is a list of rules, a list of do's, a list of don'ts that everyone who calls himself by the name of Christ must adhere to in order to continue calling themselves a Christian. But this is a list which is derived not from the Scriptures, but from tradition or from men. And Paul says this sort of thing contaminates the gospel and must be spotted and exposed. Now we have some hint in verse 10 about what one of these commandments of men may have been. Paul refers to these as those of the circumcision. So this might suggest that these teachers were teaching all of the Christians in Crete that in order to call themselves by the name of Christ, they had to be circumcised. Titus had had some personal experience with this issue in his younger life. In Acts 15, the first council of the church was held, and the issue that was discussed was whether or not Christians had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Titus was the exhibit A in this controversy. He was a Greek who had become a believer. Paul took Titus with him to Jerusalem, set him in the middle of the room, and he was the focus of the issue. Half of the room said that uh, Titus must be circumcised in order to be saved. The other half of the room was saying, no, you're saved by grace through faith. Titus does not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And, of course, Titus was hoping that group would win the argument. <laughs> Had a bit of a stake in the outcome of that. And that group did prevail because the teaching of the Scriptures is that man is saved by grace through faith alone, not through any work of the law. Now, there are people who may come to your door in Boise and tell you that in order for you to be saved... In order for you to be regenerate, you must be baptized. Well, that's not true. We are saved by grace through faith alone, not through any work that we can do. Now, I think it's important as someone who is saved follow that up by being baptized. It's a clear command of Scripture. It's an example which was followed in the early church. And it's good to do that. But it's not what saves you or makes you a Christian. You need to make that clear. Now, in Colossians 2, if you want to turn there just for a moment... Paul had to deal with the same issue of those who were passing off the commandments of men as the commandments of God in the church at Colossae. And he identifies in chapter 2 three categories in which these legalists tended to dispense the commandments of men as if they were the commandments of God and were endeavoring to judge the lifestyle of the Colossian believers in these three areas. Look at Colossians 2.16. Paul says, let no one act as your judge. 
That is, these were people who were setting themselves up as arbiters or umpires or judges over what every Christian ought to do or not to do. And Paul says, don't let them do that. Let no one act as your judge in regard to food, excuse me, first of all, or drink, secondly, or third, in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So generally he says there are three areas in which false teachers, which legalists will tend to pass off the commandments of men as the commandments of God. The first is in respect to food. There are some legalists who teach that everyone who calls himself by the name of Christ must abstain from certain foods, uh, from meat, for instance. There are others who teach that Christians must... Uh, uh, live by the dietary laws of the Old Testament. I read a book not long ago by a pastor of a conservative church arguing this very thing, that the dietary laws of the Old Testament were still binding on believers. This is in clear contrast to what Jesus said in Mark 7. It's not what goes into the man that defiles him or contaminates him or pollutes him. It what comes, it's what comes out of the man, what comes out of his heart. That's what contaminates him. And a rule about food can't do anything to deal with the rottenness in the human heart. And, and Mark goes on to say that when Jesus did this, he declared all foods uh, clean. So feel free to have shrimp for uh, lunch today. Now, the second area in which Paul says that false teachers tend to pass uh, regulations which are man-made is in the area of drink. That there are teachers who will try to tell believers that if they call themselves by the name of Christ, they must not touch wine or other alcoholic beverages. Paul says, let no one act as your judge in regard to this. Jesus himself drank wine. He created 180 gallons of the finest wine in the land for a wedding celebration. Wine was used in the early communion services of the church. Paul says, let no one act as your judge in regard to drink. The third thing was in respect to the Sabbath day, the day on which Christians worship. There are teachers uh, who are insisting today that Christians must worship on Saturday. And yet Paul says, let no one act as your judge in regard to a Sabbath day. C.S. Lewis in the book Mere Christianity deals with this uh, issue of legalism, I think, in a helpful way. And I would like to read uh, a lengthy quote from this because I think he puts it very well. He's dealing with the issue of temperance, which is one of the seven cardinal virtues. And he discusses this way. Temperance used to mean not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. It is a mistake to think that Christians ought all to be teetotalers. Mohammedanism or Islam, not Christianity, is the teetotal religion. Of course, it may be the duty of a particular Christian or of any Christian at a particular time to abstain from strong drink, either because he is the sort of man who cannot drink at all without drinking too much, or because he wants to give the money to the poor, or because he is with people who are inclined to drunkenness and must not encourage them by drinking himself. But the whole point is that he is abstaining for a good reason from something which he does not condemn and which he likes to see other people enjoying. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage or meat or beer or the cinema. 
But the moment he starts saying that the things are bad in themselves or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken the wrong turning. Now, the results of this legalistic mindset Paul traces in verse 15. And one of the things he indicates here is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23 when he referred to the Pharisees' tendency to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. What Jesus said about the Pharisees is that they were diligent in these external areas of conduct to follow their rules. He says they would tithe of dill and mint and cumin. These were little garden vegetables, and they were careful to give even a tenth of their garden vegetables and tithe. So imagine a Pharisee who had a little garden pot out in his backyard and harvested his peas. He would shut the peas and very carefully count out one out of every ten to be sure that he carried exactly 10% of the peas in his garden to the, to the temple. And Jesus pointed out that they were ignoring the real issues in life like justice and love and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and uh, righteousness and self-control. The real issues of life were being ignored because they were being preoccupied with these external lists of do's and don'ts. And Jesus used the metaphor of a Pharisee sitting down uh, to dinner and had a bowl of soup placed before him, and in this bowl of soup were camels and gnats. And he says the Pharisee would strain out the gnats, very carefully pick through and get all the little gnats out of the soup, and then swallow camels whole. And that was uh, his judgment on their sort of loss of perspective of what was truly important in the Christian life. And this is what Paul indicates in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. When Paul says to the pure, all things are pure, he means to those who are, uh, understand the gospel and who understand the nature of Christian liberty, all things are pure, that is, lawful or permissible. As Paul said in 1 Timothy, everything that God has created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. That the biblical mindset about behavior in these external areas is that everything is permitted unless the scripture forbids it. That's the proper biblical mindset. To the pure, all things are pure. Everything is permitted unless the scripture is prohibited. Now, I hasten to add, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 6, that although all things may be lawful, not all things are profitable or beneficial. So there may be any number of liberties that I, as an individual believer, must forego or must give up because they, in my case, are not constructive. They may have some kind of harmful effect. There may be certain movies that I feel I must stay away from. There may be certain things I do not permit my children to do because I am convinced it's in their best interest to draw those sort of guidelines for them. But at the same time, the biblical mindset is to do those things without insisting that every other believer observe the same list. That's the point. Now, it's obvious that if we have these liberties, we don't have to exercise them. If we have to exercise the liberties that we have in Christ, that's just bondage of another sort. So Paul says the real issue is whether some permissible activity is beneficial for me, constructive or harmful. Now Paul contrasts that with a legalistic mindset. He says to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
In other words, the legalistic mindset says that everything is forbidden unless the Scripture expressly permits it. And what it generates is a mindset which is legalistic and narrow and cramped and guilt-ridden and critical and judgmental. Now, Paul says it's because their mind has been contaminated. That is, they've been taught error about what is right and wrong. And their conscience, consequently, is also contaminated. Their conscience will make them feel guilty about certain activities which in and of themselves are not wrong. Now, this mindset results from some absurd extremes. There are branches of the church in America where men are not permitted and women are not permitted to wear any sort of jewelry. If they do, it must be covered by a sleeve. Women are not allowed to wear any sort of cosmetics. Movies are ruled out. Square dancing is considered totally forbidden. I grew up in an environment that was very similar to this, oppressive and restrictive. Uh, uh, playing cards were considered the devil's uh, tool, devil's playground. And I remember the issue of whether you could use rook cards became very prominent because this was kind of a sneaky way of uh, playing uh, cards. And that became a real issue. And that's the sort of thing. Everything becomes suspect and everything becomes questionable. I read somewhere that a legalist uh, is someone, some Christian, who is afraid that somewhere some Christian is having fun. And uh, that's really what Paul is saying here. To the legalist, nothing is pure. And that sort of thing contaminates the purity and the liberty of the gospel. And Paul says this thing needs to be identified and corrected. Now, he next uh, talks about their motive. That's the fourth uh, issue he addresses in this paragraph. He discusses their motive in verse 11. It says, They teach things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. In other words, they're in this for self-interest. They're in this to line their own pockets. A friend of mine, before he went into seminary and then into the ministry, was talking to one of his co-laborers about what he was going to do. And he told this uh, friend of his that he was going to go to seminary and then hope to go into the ministry. And his friend, without batting an eyelash, said, oh, that's good. There's a lot of money in that. And my friend is now making about $10,000 a year in the uh, ministry, proving his co-laborer wrong. But there is enough of that sort of sordid motivation in, among teachers of the Word to justify those sort of criticisms. Uh, right now, we're, uh, all of us are following a story about a prominent uh, television evangelist who's using a form of spiritual and emotional blackmail to, to prey on gullible people to, to give to keep his ministry alive. Well, that is what the Scriptures would call sordid, shameful gain. I told a story uh, a couple of years ago about a acquaintance who received a fundraising letter from a ministry who promised him that if he would give $50 or $75 or whatever to this ministry, promised him that God would triple his investment. He would receive his investment back threefold. And uh, he thought this over and wrote them back and said, I've got a better idea. Why don't you send me $50 and God will triple your investment and you'll get out of debt three times as fast. And... Uh, struck me as the only proper way to respond to that sort of appeal, which is really for sordid gain. Now, the fifth thing that I want to address is that the reason that Paul was so concerned about correcting or stopping these false teachers is because of the effect that they were having. In verse 11, he says these men must be silenced because they are upsetting or overturning whole families. worked in Paul's day just as it works in, in our day. Uh, a cult picks off a member of a family, 
and that family then becomes divided and there's tension. Uh, or one member of a family may become subject to a very legalistic strain of teaching and begin imposing those standards on other family members. And it makes family gatherings tense and awkward and uncomfortable. Paul says they're upsetting whole families and so must be stopped. Now, the last thing he says, Titus's response in verse 11, what should Titus do? First of all, he must silence these people in verse 11, must muzzle them in verse 13. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. In other words, his motive is to be redemptive, not punitive. He is to reclaim them, rebuke them so that they may be sound in the faith, but reprove them nonetheless. That's one of the functions of elders in a fellowship. Several years ago, you may remember that uh, some followers of the way stood up in a sharing time in one of our Sunday morning services and offered their services to our fellowship. And when we, as the leadership, discovered what they, who they were and what they were about, uh, the next week an insert was placed in the bulletin to uh, identify these people and what they believed and to warn our people to stay away from them and have nothing to do with them. That's the role of an elder, to prevent this sort of false teaching from creeping in to the fellowship. Now, we can only control the teaching of truth that's done in our fellowship. We can't control those who are outside the body and beyond our uh, ministry. But if someone like this does come to your door, someone who passes off a false gospel, I would encourage you to do what Paul instructed Titus to do in verse 13. Reprove them severely or curtly or abruptly that they may be sound in the faith. Now, you can do this without being brutal or cold, but if someone comes to your door and passes off a false gospel, simply tell them, look, what you are doing is teaching people error, and it is wrong. You are deceiving people, and you must stop doing that in the desire that they might see the truth and be restored to soundness in the faith, and then send them on their way. Well, this is a rather dark and gloomy passage, uh, very negative in tone, but it shows Paul's eagerness to preserve the purity uh, of the gospel because Paul was convinced that the pure stream of God's truth is the only word of hope that exists for men. And if it's contaminated, if it's soiled by these man-made additions, then it becomes a poisonous stream rather than a life-giving stream. Uh, Debbie was telling me that this past week on a talk show, she saw a group uh, called Fundamentalists Anonymous. Now, I'm sure I don't agree with everything that these people stand for, but there's a group of people who have been so scarred by growing up in very legalistic, narrow uh, churches that they've had to form a support group to deal with it. Now, that's what happens when the truth is contaminated with legalism. It's oppressive and repressive, and it begins to hurt people rather than liberate them and save them and heal them and restore. Now, this passage may seem, or Paul may seem in this passage to be fairly narrow. And in one sense, he is being very narrow because he's so eager to preserve the life-giving stream of the truth. I've discovered in my own experience that the truth is a rather narrow thing. I was dialing a friend of mine on the phone this week, and I misdialed one number. And I didn't get any points for being close. I didn't even get his next-door neighbor. I got somebody who lived clear across town. The telephone company, very unforgiving about that sort of variation. And the truth is like that. And uh, that's why we must preserve it in all of its purity and glory and simplicity, because this alone is what will set people free and give them the resources they need to handle life. 
Well, what can we do in response to a paragraph like this? Well, there's a couple things that I would encourage you to do. The first one is to spend time in the Scriptures yourself. Spend time meditating on the Word, pondering it, reading it quietly, meditating on its thoughts, asking God to give you a deeper and deeper grasp on His liberating truth. And then you yourself will be able to spot bogus currency as soon as it appears. And the second thing is I would encourage you to pray for the elders that God has placed over this church to oversee. And pray that they likewise might become deeper and deeper students of the Scripture and have their roots sunk ever more deeply in the bedrock of the Word. Pray for them that they might grow in their ability to encourage us in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Uh, Let's uh, stand and then I will uh, pray for us and we will be dismissed. This would be a good time to remind you to pray uh, not only for our elders in general, but specifically for Mark Falconer, who is the new chairman of uh, our elder council. Pray that God will grant him uh, wisdom and grace as he provides uh, direction for the elders. Let's pray together. Father, we do uh, come to a passage like this with some fear. We're eager, Lord, not to offend and not to overstep, and yet eager at the same time, Lord, to preserve the purity of the gospel. All of us realize how much we owe to you and the truth, how much liberty and freedom it's brought to life, and we are eager, Lord, to preserve this purity. Pray for each of us here that you motivate us to become uh, more committed students of the Scripture, that you motivate us to pray for our elders. And we do pray for them, Lord, in their shepherding role, that you'll equip them for that, give them a deeper grasp of the truth and a growing ability to impart it to us in a way that is helpful and protective at the same time. We thank you for your offer to us to be everything we need in this coming week. We pray that we will find in the Scriptures... As we open it this week, words of encouragement, comfort, and challenge, and ministry. We look to you for all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.